the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by John Sitalides. John is a geopolitical strategist and diplomacy consultant for the U.S. Department of State. He has been featured and published a bunch of different places, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Fox News, Bloomberg. He advises major corporations and institutional clients about global risks and security concerns. Uh, basically, the kind of things that we are seeing very well today, uh, especially you, you know, talk about Ukraine in particular. So, uh, John, thanks so much for being with me. It's a real pleasure. Well, thank you for having me, Ashton. It's great to be with you and your audience today. Absolutely. So, um, let's start off there. We, uh, I recently came onto your work. One of the other people in the geopolitical sort of strategy space I followed previously has been Peter Zihine. Peter famously, uh, well, I guess famously now, in his 2014 book, he talked about how by 2022, he anticipated Russia making a move on Ukraine because it would be their last chance to do it under the premise that this is sure their last last real opportunity to to make a move like this because their demographic declines and they wanted to you know expand their borders. And his theory was they're going to go into Ukraine and then you know the Baltic states would be next and that's how they're going to sort of secure their or, or sorry, not necessarily expand their borders, right? Expand their borders, uh, which is something that you know, certainly Soviet Union did, something that Russia traditionally has liked to do throughout history, and something even Putin himself has mm-hmm. spoken about on, ma- on many occasions prior. From your standpoint, this this Russian invasion of Ukraine, is this something that you and other people who, who have a sort of expertise in this space, who follow this space closely, is this something that you guy that you particular and others around you that you know anticipated? Uh, or is it was this a surprise? Let's go a little bit further back in history, Ashton. You bring up some very interesting observations here. In the mid-1990s, uh, the political uh, scientist Samuel Huntington wrote his seminal book called The Clash of Civilizations. And he wrote about countries that he considered divided, that really were not unified countries. And one of the countries, countries that he mentioned, I believe the book was published in 1995 or 1996, was Ukraine, essentially because it was... Catholic on one side and Orthodox on the other. It was part of the Soviet Union, but had EU and NATO aspirations. And that really the tug of history was going to make this very difficult as a unified country going forward. Uh, Fast forward to around 2015, where John Mearsheimer, uh, the renowned political uh, scientist today, basically warned the West that the strategy of continuing to encroach on Russia's borders uh, via the Baltics, uh, via Poland, via Romania, and then eventually through Ukraine, was going to be highly problematic from Moscow's perspective. Whoever the leader of that country was going to be, but especially as long as it was Vladimir Putin. And so we've had some very astute scholars who for decades have been warning the West about the strategy. And this is not necessarily to blame the West for the invasion of Ukraine, because most experts from the military perspective and also geopolitical did not anticipate a full-scale invasion of Ukraine what we had been looking at instead was a series of rolling military operations, largely to secure Russia's uh, acquisition of, or annexation, I'll say, of Crimea in 2014, uh, its backing of the pro-Russian separatist movement in the Donbass region in southeastern Ukraine. And we see them consolidating those gains right now. And I think what we see in addition to these particular rolling operations right now is a Russian effort to close off the Sea of Azov and the southeast to Ukrainian ports, uh, connect that geographically with the Crimea Peninsula in the south-central part of Ukraine, 
and connected geographically to the critical strategic port of Odessa in the western part of Ukraine's Black Sea coast and essentially seal off Ukraine from the Black Sea, have, um, have Ukraine's exports and imports, sea base that is controlled by Russia, uh, and allow Russia essentially to control the Ukrainian economy, it doesn't have to take over Kiev at that point. It can simply compel the Ukrainian government to bid Russia's will, or it'll starve the country economically. Mm -hmm. I see. So th th those are the goals that they've had for, for quite some time. And does the other... Are there other territorial ambitions you think that have been a part of this this operation to want to invade Ukraine, such as going after the mm -hmm. Baltics? Well, I never like to pretend I can read anyone's mind. So mm -hmm. I don't know what's in Vladimir Putin's mind before or what's in his mind right now and, of course, what's to come. It seems as though, in retrospect, right now that we're Monday morning quarterbacking on the beginning of the invasion, that there was a sense that they could move in towards Kiev right away uh, without even laying siege to it, but essentially force the government to surrender. They probably had bad intelligence that the Ukrainian people would not resist in any meaningful way, neither would the Ukrainian military, and they would be able to gain far greater political concessions at the get-go, and that all right. failed. And so it looks like right now we're in Plan B, where they're digging in around Kiev. Uh, they're not going to be withdrawing forces yet. But almost all the military muscle is being directed at the Donbass region and then I think again to the Black Sea. So it looks like they're probably going to be refreshing troops, bringing in heavier armor and artillery, and hopefully not, but potentially laying siege to other countries as they've done, I mean to other cities, as they've done with Mariupol over the last several weeks, turning it in effect into a, a new Grozny or a new Aleppo. As for beyond Ukraine, Ashton, it's way too early to tell right now, I think because Putin's initial military uh, objectives were dashed by the Ukrainian resistance. Right. And it seems to me that with the U.S. beefing up its presence in Poland, it makes Poland essentially a Russian attack on NATO. And that's going mm -hmm. to escalate very quickly out of control, not only in ways that are undesirable for the United States and for the West, but for Putin and for Russia. So we right. also have a fear card to play on him. We don't need to be mindful only of what can be done to you know, pro-Western forces. Uh, my, my larger concern down the road is going to be in the Baltic countries because they are smaller. It is easier for mm -hmm. Russia to move in, literally take over one, two, or three of those countries in probably two to three days. Right. And they're also geographically cut off from most of the NATO presence in Europe, including uh, with a small piece of sovereign Russian territory called Kaliningrad, mm -hmm. which is sandwiched between Lithuania and Poland. And right. the Suwalki gap between Kaliningrad and Belarus is an area that is easy for military exploitation, exploitation by Russia if they're looking to physically cut off the Baltic countries from a land perspective from Poland and other land forces in NATO, and also uh, from the sea, with the Baltic Sea largely dominated by Finland and Sweden, two countries mm -hmm. that are not yet in NATO. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, you you make several good points there. So with uh, the Kaliningrad, I always wondered why Russian help was a, so sort of adamant about holding on to that. Uh, now, now you can kind of see the strategic importance mm -hmm. of that. It's like kind of like right next to Poland. It's, it's detached from the rest of Russia. Yeah. It's interesting. One of those interesting little places in the world. Um, and it's extremely and, heavily yeah. armed. And Russia has every mm -hmm. right to arm its own territory, uh, again, right. in, in a very strategic area next to Poland, not too distant from Germany. 
and they also have their S-400 anti-aircraft uh, missile systems based there, and also cruise missiles with several hundred mile ranges. So Kaliningrad is hmm. essentially a Russian land extension near the heart of NATO, and we never talk about it. <laughs> Instead, we're busy right. here talking about Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. So there's there's that aspect, and then there's the aspect about essentially that you, that you mentioned with with regards to NATO expansion and what role that played, because that's always sort of like a debate. And it's, I mean, it's difficult to know would this have happened had you know, NATO not continually expanded and you know uh, been a part of essentially other regimes surrounding Russia and if that pushed them into a corner uh, or if he would have done this anyways. I mean, these are impossible questions to know. But may I, may I interject, yeah, Ashton? Yes. I tend to take world leaders at their word. Most of them mm -hmm. tend to very uh, easily and candidly broadcast their objectives to the outside world. And when we talk later on about China and Iran, we'll talk about the same habit of world leaders. We tend to not believe what they say and dismiss it as meant for domestic consumption, but I take their statements right. very seriously. So I also date this back to Vladimir Putin's very famous speech in 2007 at the Munich Security Conference, where he essentially declared his rejection, his opposition to the US-led rules-based international order. Uh, mm -hmm. He, from his perspective, and we don't know that it's honest, but from his perspective, he had reached out to Europe, to the United States, shortly after he came to power in 2000, in 99, 2000. Uh, he reminds the West that he reached out to President, then President George Bush, right after the September 11th attacks, and made very mm -hmm. clear that Russia wanted to be helpful to the United right. States in dealing with Russia in Afghanistan. Although, of course, that's a mutual interest because Russia has its own concern about Islamist radical terrorists coming out of mm -hmm. Central Asia into its underbelly, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and the like. But uh, he declared an end to the system as we all knew it and made very clear that he intended to draw red lines. He did not do so with Poland and the Baltics and Romania, but he made very clear that, that Ukraine was a non-starter. That was a completely unacceptable hmm. encroachment by NATO. And even if Ukraine wasn't going to be joining NATO anytime soon, still a highly corrupt country, not meeting any of NATO's democratic norms by any stretch of the imagination, mm -hmm. uh, and also needing a number of economic liberalization reforms as well. The idea that there might be NATO missiles stationed in Europe, uh, more and more joint exercises as recently as November of 2021, I think really was what, what broke the camel's back on, on Moscow's side, or mm -hmm. specifically on Putin's side. So uh, he had made very clear that he was going to push back Again, I think most of us are stunned by the swiftness, the, the scope uh, and the, the massive armor that had been massed around Ukraine for the last 10 months, right? They've been building up these forces essentially since March of 2021. This is not a surprise, except again, the scope of the invasion, not the fact that Russian forces would be moving into Ukraine. Yeah, take leaders at the word. I like that because traditionally throughout history, that's kind of been the, uh, the most rational move to make was was to listen to what people actually say and, and take them at their word because even the most uh, vile disgusting dictators have essentially been fairly transparent about what they hope to achieve whether we're looking at you know the world war ii ones like right. hitler in particular mussolini i remember you know even mm -hmm. someone like stalin was very much adamant about expanding the communist order around the world and people kind of dismissed that as well they dismissed hitler um, and yeah, traditionally speaking, the, <laughs> even the most vile people have been congruent in terms of what they say and what they, what they hope to act. And it's been oftentimes the West's 
naivete or their um, maybe even hubris to a certain extent disregarding some of the stuff that seemed outlandish or crazy and then these people actually act on it, right? That seems to be one of the, the main mistakes that we made over and over again throughout, particularly I think the 20th century. One might say, Ashton, that we in the West consider ourselves hyper-rational, very objective about these matters, mm -hmm. and the rest of the world thinks the way that we do. And that's, that's a great failing on the part of Western strategists to be so dismissive of other political cultures and the statements and intentions of world leaders who really don't share our objectives and our interests. Uh, we learned that with Vladimir Putin. We're learning it with uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping of the Chinese Communist mm -hmm. Party. Uh, I'm afraid we are not learning it with the mullahs in Iran now that we have right. the Biden administration seemingly obsessed with an Iran nuclear deal, and we'll get to that in short order, I presume. But uh, when they talk about their intentions, whether it was Ukraine, whether it's Taiwan, whether it's Israel and the Middle East more broadly, uh, I take their, their statements with deadly seriousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and another excellent point. I think you're in DC, so you certainly recognize this. And I'm here in Los Angeles. And a lot of the professional class, the, uh, what we call the elite class, are individuals who grew up with a certain mindset who have very, for example, I think the, the mullahs would be one of the best examples of this. There are people in, in the United States, particularly in the, the major coastal cities and in D.C., who couldn't even conceive of the fact that a religious ideology motivates people because it plays such a, a non-existent role in their lives that to think that there is a, a religious ideology that can motivate your politics beyond just the material is, is something so abstract to them. So they make decisions based on them thinking about it, right? It's, it's almost like this sort of Western, you know, paternalism to a certain extent. Um, and you see this also, also with, with China, as you mentioned, people not understanding the role of culture in the East, the, the role of, of duty in the East, mm -hmm. the, the, tra the ancient traditions. They think of things, they, they look at the world, they project onto the world, their values, their experience with growing up as a you know Western elite in America, and think other major people, other major leaders in the world think the same way they do, but they don't, right? So, if you can, let's let's discuss China and their role with Russia and what China's role is uh, with respect to to this current conflict, and if there's any lessons you think that they're taking out of this, because one of the things people prognosticate about is Will China go after Taiwan next? Yeah, well, uh, let's let's delve there because uh, it was just about two years ago that General Secretary Xi uh, gave a speech. It was in January of 2019, I believe, uh, and it was directed essentially at the Taiwanese government and the Taiwanese people, as well as to the United States and any of the countries that might come to Taiwan's aid in the event of an invasion. And uh, Chairman Xi stated that Taiwan is going to be absorbed into China by 2049. That's the centennial of the Chinese Communist Party's rise to power from 1949 mm -hmm. and the aftermath of World War II. And uh, ideally, Taiwan will voluntarily uh, join with China. But China will not forswear the use of military force to compel Taiwan to be unified with China. So uh, the Chinese government is clear. Sometime in the next two and a half decades, Taiwan will be incorporated into China. The question then, Ashton, is how and along what timeline? So I think what's happening in Ukraine right now is affecting those two decisions. 
One in terms of timeline, I think what's pretty clear is uh, I, I presume that Chairman Xi was as stunned as President Putin was by the swiftness of the U.S. and Western sanctions regime that's been imposed mm -hmm. on Russia. What we're teaching the world is that you don't need to have a naval blockade to destroy an economy. You can do it using using financial instruments and the United States wielding the power of the U.S. dollar as the global currency. So China is not as exposed as Russia is. China is a much larger economy, much more integrated in global supply chains and trade with Europe and the United States and other Asian countries. But I would sense that she has given the orders to top party cadres to run through the entire list of potential U.S. and European sanctions that could potentially be imposed on China in a worst case scenario if, let's say, after the November Chinese Communist Party National Congress, where Xi hopes to gain his third consecutive term in power and sort of shatter the precedent of recent Chinese premiers and um, presidents who've had two terms and go back to the Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping model of dictatorship for life. So I don't see anything mm -hmm. serious happening in and around Taiwan until after November. But the end of the year, early 2023, if there were to be military operations, and again, they don't have to be massive on the scale of Ukraine. Um, just the way I had imagined that there would be sort of smaller, more targeted military operations, you could see, for instance, Ashton, the Chinese Navy taking over several tiny Taiwanese islands immediately hmm. off the coast of China or deep in the South China Sea and leaving Taiwan, the island, alone. But then what does Taiwan do to regain its islands? And will it right. actually take <clears throat> on the second most powerful military in the world to gain back tiny islands with several hundred inhabitants? And is the U.S. really going to risk a possible nuclear war with China over tiny Taiwanese islands five miles off the coast of mainland China? So you could see a salami slice series of operations by the Chinese Communist Party against Taiwan starting in 2023, and the Chinese government looking to prepare itself against uh, global financial and trade sanctions. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Also, you could have the Chinese government decide there's really no rush right now for any type of military operations, period, because the Chinese economy is still too dependent on Western financing, Western technology. If right. they were to be cut off, the Chinese government could, um, economy could probably absorb it more effectively than the Russian economy, but it would still constitute a major setback. And the compact between mm -hmm. the Chinese Communist Party and one3 billion Chinese people is give us continued material progress and security and we'll let you rule the country. But if there's a war with any country, especially the United States or Japan, and the economy is reeling as a result of Taiwan operations, you could have mass massive social unrest and the overthrow of the Chinese Communist Party by the Chinese people. So they're mm -hmm. not going to risk that, I believe, anytime in the near future. So what you could see instead, and I'll close on this, is the slow uh, a treated strangulation of Taiwan, uh, diplomatically forcing countries around the world to cut off all ties, uh, economically by forming its own semiconductor industry and not being dependent on Taiwan's any longer, mm -hmm. and also continuing to harass the Taiwanese military in the air, at sea, with the Chinese maritime militia of you know thousands and tens of thousands of fishing boats that harass Taiwanese boats and the Taiwanese economy and essentially exhaust the Taiwanese people and the Taiwanese government to decide to come to the table and negotiate the terms of their ultimate capitulation. Interesting. Yeah, I've never heard of that angle of the, the small islands 
that are, that are essentially Taiwanese islands and going in there first. I didn't realize that there were those. That would make make perfect sense. It's essentially, what Russia did, chipping away first with Crimea uh, and other regions, then mm-hmm. finally entering into U- Ukraine full scale. Uh, of course, also you know consolidating Belarus and getting that under their under their uh, auspices. In some ways, is China more? I don't know if the right, right word is vulnerable, but because of their incredible reliance on globalization, on you know world trade, because of their lack of their lack of uh, essentially energy resources, uh, you know they they are very dependent, especially given their population. They're so, they they don't have enough energy to supply their own country with. They have to, uh, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things they've been doing. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but they've been significantly increasing their relationship. The strength of the relationship with Iran, I believe one island in particular they've kind of taken over called Kish. They've they've built a lot of infrastructure there, trying to get foothold in Iran, uh, because they are just such a, a energy dependent nation. Uh, on top of that, they're also a very vulnerable nation when it comes to food and food resources. Been that way throughout their entire history, mm-hmm. especially now with this this fertilizer issue. That's that's the result of this Russia Ukraine uh, conflict. Right there's there's a lot of fertilizer that's going offline that people are speculating about, and how that can affect food resources around the world. Um, do you think that in some ways China could be more vulnerable because of their incredible amount of dependence on the entire world and you know lacking adequate supplies in two of the most important areas, which is energy and food? Ashton, the short answer is yes. So let's elaborate a little bit. Uh, you're absolutely correct that China is largely dependent on external sources for oil and for natural gas. It does have extensive ties to Russia already, and it will likely seek to exploit the cutoff of uh, Russian energy resources of hydrocarbons to Europe. Uh, if Europe can accomplish that goal, which I'm highly skeptical of, my own sense is that Europe will remain highly dependent on Russian oil and natural gas for a long time to come. And these renewable mm-hmm. aspirations are more fantasies than, than real-world policies. But we'll get to that later on. Um, so yep. China will look to uh, buy whatever oil and natural gas Europe believes it won't need to purchase any longer. And they'll connect pipelines that are currently uh, in place from central and north west, northeastern uh, Russia connecting into China and simply build pipelines across western Russia to connect those to eastern uh, to Eastern Europe pipelines through Ukraine, through Poland, uh, through Hungary to Europe. So they don't have to build three or 4,000 mile long pipelines. They need to build several hundred pipelines and it won't take place mm-hmm. tomorrow, but it can take place in a short order, four to five years uh, in Russia and connect the current European uh, natural gas and oil supply grid to that of China. We mm-hmm. also note that for about three months prior to China and Russia issuing their now famous February 4th or 5th joint statement at the, uh, the opening day of the Beijing Olympics, uh, declaring their relationship and their partnership uh, having no limits. They will cooperate and build up that coordination on a series of policies across the full spectrum of diplomatic relations and trade relations. Again, going back to what we were saying earlier about taking world leaders at face value when they issue these types of statements. So I think they'll also be looking to increase their foodstuff imports from Russia. Uh, uh, interestingly, China is looking to ensure that, that their support for Russia does not disrupt their relationship with Ukraine. 
because mm. they're highly dependent on Ukraine for wheat, for right. other major foodstuffs, as well as for critical metals and rare earths, which are very important for China's long-term ambitions of essentially mm. setting technological right. standards for the remainder of the 21st century the way the U.S. and Japan did in the 20th century. And this is made again manifest mm -hmm. publicly in their uh, Made in China 2025 strategy issued in 2015. And uh, the other strategy I think issued in 2020 is called uh, China Standards 2035, by which time they hope they will have created or consolidated international uh, norms, platforms, and standards for technological-based industries and sectors. They're very open about all of this. We just tend to ignore this in Washington, in Brussels, in most of the West. So uh, China will be looking to increase its uh, resilience, its independence from you know, one or two source countries. And on energy, I will also add, Ashton, that mm -hmm. uh, China resents the fact that international waters upon which the trade that has made China so wealthy over the last right. 20 years remains patrolled and largely led by the United States Navy along with our regional allies in the Indian Ocean, in the Pacific Ocean, mm -hmm. in the Mediterranean, in uh, the Persian Gulf region. And so China will look, I think, to move away from sea-based energy imports and put as much of this on uh, pipelines, on the Eurasian continent, and on railways as possible. I see. So that, that, that was actually my that's perfect segue because that was my next question. As you mentioned, the United States hmm. centrally controls international shipping lanes around the world. They control the, the global order of how things get moved around. And as we know, shipping something overseas is like 10 times cheaper, 20 times cheaper sometimes than shipping it over land. So the way the world, the way globalization is, is you know, the foundation of it is international shipping lanes that the United States is essentially in charge of. So the question is, as the U.S. sort of turns more insular, we see a bit of this with respect to this current conflict again, Russia, Ukraine, where we're not even at the, you know, the negotiation table. We're not mediating it. It's Israel <laughs> and, and France who are trying to play that role or it's actually playing that role with regards to mediating the, the Russia, Ukraine conflict. Famously, just what a couple of weeks ago, the UAE and Saudi crown prince didn't take President Biden's call back. And so there's that aspect. Part of that is, is sort of the, this administration that some of our allies don't trust, the Biden administration. But part of it is a trend of the United States sick of being the policeman in the world. I think the polls pretty much bear that out. Both parties have a sense that our interventionist strategies, we should tone that back, to say the least. So the question is, if the United States continues to go towards this more insularly focused trend. We're going to work on ourselves, right? Does that create way more turmoil for the world? Because there's a vacuum and we know vacuums invite chaos. And that seems like that would sort of screw over China, right? Because now there's this vacuum. Now China's going to have to, what? You know, they get a lot of their oil from, from the Middle East to this day. A lot of it has to come through that Malacca Strait, which is tiny. Um, and then, you know, Japan's going to have to secure their, their energy resources. So we have this like, sort of like vacuum if the United States doesn't play that role it's traditionally played for the last many decades. Do you see – first of all, do you agree with that? Do you agree that the United States is probably going to be more focused on itself and not as much on the rest of the world going forward regardless of the candidate, number one? Number two, does that create a vacuum that 
causes conflicts around the world. Where do you see those conflicts? Uh, with your permission, let me answer number two first. Sure. And that'll give us the context for answering your first question. You're absolutely right, Ashton. Uh, power abhors a vacuum, right? One of the most famous adages in, in human history. And if the United States is not leading the way in protecting international shipping lanes, then that void will be filled by others. And right now, for the foreseeable future, that void would be filled by China in the Indo-Pacific region. They really are the only other major country with the kind of naval power projection capability. And they would certainly seek to dominate the South China Sea, the East China Sea, and the Western Pacific, essentially everything between the Philippines and Hawaii, uh, where the US is now the predominant force. Uh, they would also probably look to project power into the Indian Ocean, because that really is the maritime superhighway that mm. connects Chinese markets to both oil and natural gas supplies from the Middle East, but also through the Indian Ocean to uh, the African continent for natural resources that China needs for many of its manufactured goods, and then through the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea to European markets to be able to put those finished goods to market. So the Indian Ocean is also a vital uh, shipping lane for China, and you would probably see China and India contest for supremacy in that part mm -hmm. of the world. And then, of course, you would have countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia, highly dependent on those shipping lanes, then looking to counterbalance to see how they're able to work with China and India so they're able to continue with their significant energy exports to Asian and to European markets. And in Europe, without the United States in place there, you would almost certainly have uh, very difficult tensions between Russia on the one hand and Britain and France on the other, two nuclear powers in Europe both with very powerful naval forces. And so you would have, if not chaos, you would have uh, competition and constant rivalry around the Eurasian landmass and along the eastern coast of the African continent. That's what hmm. one would first imagine a U.S. withdrawal would lead to, which leads me to point number two. It's why I don't believe the U.S. will do so anytime soon. And there may be a greater desire on the part of the American people uh, for the U.S. to pull back from many of its commitments. But let me offer a couple of my own thoughts here, Ashton, if I might. My own sense is that uh, the American people are not war-weary, even though we have been through 20 years of war in Iraq and in Afghanistan. But my own sense is, reading the polls and talking to people tra as I travel around the country, is they wonder why the United States doesn't win wars anymore. So mm -hmm. they'll support the U.S. military. It's our most trusted institution. And if right. there is a compelling U.S. interest abroad, they'll support the president and the Congress if they dispatch forces to accomplish a goal, but to win. In other words, send our forces there and let them do the job that needs to be done and not engage in this kind of nation building and liberal humanitarian interventionism that many of us, and I'll include myself very honestly, thought maybe 20 years ago in the wake of the September 11th attacks was a necessary uh, tool for foreign policy and diplomacy especially in the broader Middle East and Northern Africa. And 20 years of essential failure has made very clear that liberal interventionism is also a failed policy. And that's mm -hmm. why we have to be careful with Ukraine. As heart-wrenching as these images are of 10 million displaced Ukrainians, almost 4 million of them have become refugees spilling over into Europe, uh, is the situation in Ukraine or between Ukraine and Russia a genuinely compelling U.S. strategic interest that is worth risking the potential exchange of nuclear weapons right. between Moscow and New York, or Moscow and Washington, or major European capitals. So uh, I think it's very important that we find a way to bring about, for instance, in this case, a ceasefire 
between Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned before, Ashton, that there are a number of leaders who are hedging their bets. You're looking at the Saudi uh, Arabia Kingdom. You're looking at the United Arab Emirates. And you also note, say, the role of the Israelis in looking to right. uh, play an intermediary role in negotiations. I would add to the Israelis uh, the role of French President Emmanuel Macron and Turkish mm-hmm. President uh, Raip Tayyip Erdogan, who are trying to keep doors open to both Russia and Ukraine, bring about a ceasefire, and bring an end to the war so that we can then figure out politically and diplomatically how we move this process forward. But to have this war continuing with no particular objective in sight, realistically speaking, at least to date, I haven't heard of a strategic interest coming from Washington or from Brussels, except to continue to arm the Ukrainians to beat back the Russians, which will come at tremendous cost to the Ukrainian people, to the Ukrainian economy, to Ukrainian society. And who's going to rebuild all of this? And how do we know we're going to do this without escalation to a chem bio attack, a major cyber attack on a European or American infrastructure or energy grid? Or God forbid, Vladimir Putin actually launches a tactical nuclear weapon against a military facility in Ukraine, or even worse, inside of a European country that's not in the uh, NATO alliance. Do you think that, let me ask you a quick question about China, then I want to get your prognostication about how the world sure shapes up, let's say by Mm -hmm. 2050, because, you know, from the World War II era on, it was pretty easy. It was America, it was Soviet Union, then it was just America. And now we have all these different players. Obviously, you reference a few of them. India, on its rise up, uh, should be a top three economy, right, within the coming decades. Maybe a number one or number two. Who knows how that goes? Um, you know, Japan is certainly, you know, they have demographic issues, but they're certainly no joke. They have an incredible navy. They still have mm-hmm. technological development and, and play an integral role in the world economy. Uh, China's demographics are going off the cliff. It seems like they have the worst, I think they have the worst like demographics ever, right? Largely because of that one child policy. And um, and then obviously we have, we have Russia sort of making this last hurrah, so to speak. Um, the European nations, they, they're kind of a thing of the past, but are they? Who knows? Germany se- seems you know, certainly that they are in a very vulnerable position, which is what happens when you don't you know engage in nuclear uh, energy anymore, right? They just gave up all their energy ambitions, and now they're completely reliant on Russia. Um, so first let's talk about China. The how do you see that the China? Let me let me preface it this way: the last from sort of early two thousands mm-hmm. onward, particularly in the twenty tens, the dominant narrative was China's going to take over. China's going to be number one. They're going to take over everything. I don't hear that much anymore from that narrative because there are certainly a lot of there seems to be a lot of issues with. That China's dealing with, and, and particularly their, their de- demography issues. Um, another thing that was recently brought up was like they had to slaughter all these all these pigs, right? Because it's this like African flu, and like that's a huge that she feeds so many people. And so you know that gets back to the whole food vulnerability issue that they have. How do you see the China narrative playing out by 2050? Are they are they going to play as powerful a force or foe as the Soviet Union did, or have we? seen their peak because we certainly seen their population peak but have we seen their economic military peak you think i try very hard ashton to not look at this through uh, absolute terms but more through relative mm-hmm. terms 
And by that, I mean all of the facts that you lay out about China and its demographic trends are accurate. But China can also engage in certain policies that can look to deflect the vulnerabilities that these demographic declines are leading towards. And they also have a one-party state, and they're able to uh, move with ruthless efficiency to accomplish whatever goals the government feels needs to be accomplished. And, and I say again in relative terms because I think much of this depends not only on what Beijing does, but also on what we do here in the United States. Uh, it's, decline really is a choice. And if we choose to decline mm -hmm. relative to China, that's on the American people and our political and frankly our business and civic leadership. And my concern is that we have been so absurdly obsessed with sort of Russian meddling in American politics since 2015, 2016, the country that enjoyed all of that Russia distraction more than anyone else was China because they were able to continue with a very right. ambitious, very belligerent strategy in Asia and around the world. And our media are largely ignoring them. And, uh, and it's to mm -hmm. the detriment of American long-term strategy. You know, you're talking about 2050. Yep. I'm trying to stay as focused as I can on simply the next five years, Ashton. So, yeah. you know, with your OK, I won't go to 2050 with any any sort okay. of long term predictions. But look, for instance, at the fact that the, the Chinese government has instituted policies that generate five to six times more STEM engineers every year than yep. does the United States. The, the 21st century economy on a global scale is going to be far more technologically based than anything we saw in the prior century. But if we're failing to, to get STEM engineers out of our graduate schools and we have more and more of our students taking on absurd amounts of student debt and learning liberal arts and social studies and failing to pay off their debt and buy a home and start a family and lead productive lives, I mean, frankly, we have our own very serious demographic, if not declines, disruptions or upheavals here in the United States in the next 5, 10, 20 years. And so I think we need to be very much focused on building up our technology infrastructure. And I mean that on a human scale, not just hardware and mm -hmm. you know roadways and transportation grids and the like. So I think that's going to be very important. We're going to have to beef up our uh, military. That's a stark fact. Mm -hmm. And we, we have not wanted to do so. Uh, we are now at a point where the Biden budget uh, for FY 2022 is the largest defense budget in history, uh, nearly $800 billion. However, again, in relative terms, it is a decline uh, because it is less than the rate of inflation affecting the rest of the fiscal year budget. So mm. almost every domestic program has increased anywhere from 10 to 15 percent, and the defense budget has actually shrunk in absolute terms uh, after inflation. What we really need is a trillion-dollar defense budget, and that will get us the kind of Navy that can compete with China's Navy because they now have more ships than we do. They have more long-range strike uh, missiles that are able to destroy our aircraft carriers. And if we lose hmm. aircraft carriers, we lose all power dominance yep. in any of the regions of the world that we're patrolling the waters of. So we need to be able to develop our own long-strike missiles to threaten the Chinese and basically put us in a position of mutual deterrence. We have failed to do so. We do not have adequate missile defense to deal with Russian and now Chinese hypersonic nuclear missiles. Yep. And North Korea is testing ICBMs at a pace they haven't in six years. So we're dealing with a much more dangerous world. And yet we continue to talk about culture wars and mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you know, sort of social issues that distract us from the very, very dangerous and complex geopolitical landscape 
that we're facing, certainly the most dangerous since the end of the Cold War and possibly going back to the end of World War II. So we need to build up our workforce, our education. We need to be serious about our defense. And we need Americans to love this country again. Mm -hmm. The one thing that we do in the United States that almost no country in history has ever done is teach a generation of young people that its country is loathsome. Uh, yep. lo people who detest their country or who were embarrassed of the founding of their country, however imperfect America is, and we're highly imperfect, but better than everyone else mm -hmm. from my personal standpoint. But we won't want to defend America against our enemies if we're not proud of America. Right. So we need not only to get STEM engineers out to be able to compete on a technological level, but we need to better educate our young people that with all the imperfections, with all the flaws, we are all imperfect, sinning human beings. We have accomplished more in our 200 plus years as a country than any country in history. We have so much to be proud of, and we need to inculcate our young people of this or else we're doomed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, the, uh, you know, I, mean, I, I joke about this, but I'm actually kind of serious. Too. That's why I have more respect for the Chinese Communist Party than some of the neo-Marxists we have over here teaching, <laughs> teaching our students in uh, universities and in schools, right? I mean, at least the Chinese, they basically deputize their entire society to work on behalf of the Chinese government and project strength, right? And empower themselves. Whereas our postmodern neo-Marxists here, Centrally, are have this nihilistic point of view that they try to destroy this country, destroy its history, destroy its foundation, create massive amounts of nihilism amongst the youngsters, the young the young people in schools, and yeah, they, I mean it's just sickening. And you're not going to be able to compete with a China when you've got our people being taught how evil America is and you know pursuing all these worthless degrees or fields of study that don't benefit them in any real sense and actually create even more bad ideas in their head. And, and then, you, as you said, you know, China's pumping out five times more STEM graduates with mm -hmm. the, the other, the other thing about China. Um, do you think that now I'll ask you, I just want to ask you about India after this, but do you, do you think that this experience we're having with this current conflict, Russia, Ukraine, um, obviously, what we saw with COVID where so many of our major industries we didn't even know were based in China. Like, you know, for example, the uh, generic drug industry, right? A significant portion of it's based there. Um, Taiwan, of course, has the semiconductor chips that fund, that basically fuel our entire society. I think 50% of all our semiconductors are from Taiwan. Even the U.S. military is dependent on those chips, right? Which makes a Chinese takeover of Taiwan that much more perilous for us. Do you think that this is going to incentivize or or just further catalyze America to move the supply chains, move, um, you know, all, all these, yeah, trades, processes, the manufacturing to places like the U.S. or even at least Mexico, given this whole experience. I'll just finish with one, one quote by Larry Fink from BlackRock, who recently said this marks the end of globalization, speaking about the whole Russia-Ukraine thing. Do you see that trend happening as well because of our uh, now understanding of, of how vulnerable we are? I would take a different approach than Mr. Fink, who I know is very highly regarded, right? He is the CEO of a multi-trillion dollar <laughs> investment yeah, firm at BlackRock. But I, I'm less concerned about, quote unquote, the end of globalization or deglobalization and looking more towards the future of how we re-globalize the global economy. 
we're, we're never going to be completely self-dependent uh, uh, countries or markets or economies. It, it makes for bad economics. It makes for bad diplomacy. The question is, how do we realign our trade and commercial ties with countries so that when there are supply chains that are, for instance, outside the United States, we're not relying on hostile adversaries like China, but we're relying on allies or more reliable partners, ideally here in the Western Hemisphere, like you said, Ashton, like in mm -hmm. Mexico, Central America, Latin America, the Caribbean islands, uh, friendly neighbors, and many of whom are in desperate need of economic revitalization. And it's very much in our interest because then it would stem the flow of illegal yep. aliens into the United States because people would want to be able to thrive and prosper in their home countries, mm -hmm. not necessarily leave for an alien country, the United States, if they can have good economies. And actually, you need also to deal with corruption and good governance in many of these countries. But you can start with proper economic reforms. But you certainly want to move your supply chains to the degree possible away from China. And that's going to be, I think, a major incentive. The problem that we have is that that's a political or policy objective, but many businesses still have a profound interest in working with Chinese partners because of the ruthless efficiency of the supply chain floors that the Chinese have been able to build over the last 20 years since we allowed them to join the World Trade Organization. So I think it's going to be a difficult process, mm -hmm. but there's actually a fascinating debate, Ashton, I would say, taking place right here in Washington, where you have a convergence of the traditional left that has been pro-industrial policy and now elements of a more sort of national conservatism element of the right that also uh, supports some sense of an industrial mm -hmm. policy so that the government is helping to subsidize or at least incentivize those critical industries like medical and healthcare equipment, rare earths, energy, so that we're not dependent again on either dangerous parts of the world or governments in hostile countries. So I look to see how that debate plays out I'm not convinced it's going to be something that we know the outcome of this year or next, but certainly over the next three to five years. What do you see with respect to India's role in the world, in a world in which it's seeing like there's going to be a China sphere and a U.S. influence sphere? How do you see India shaping things going forward? India is a country with vast economic, military, and uh, diplomatic power projection depending on the decisions that the Indian government takes today and in the near term. And uh, there are concerns that the government of Narendra Modi has continued to pursue a strongly nationalist Hindu line that alienates India's 200 million Muslims and that thwarts the kinds of economic liberalization that the relatively sclerotic Indian bureaucracy needs to actually allow the economy to flourish. But if you look at the demographic trends, Ashton, we spoke earlier about those in China and the United States, India's uh, population will actually continue to grow potentially for the next hmm. 20 to 30 years. Hmm. Projections are by, that by 2040, one out of every five workers in the world will be in India. So we're talking about a massive wow. economy. Population wow. will surpass China's in the next 10 to 12 years. But uh, much of this also depends on the kinds of opportunities that the Indian government and the Indian business leadership will provide for their own people, including, as we all know around the world, very desperately needed social and legal reforms regarding caste society in, inside of India. You need to be able to allow people to realize their fullest potential in terms of uh, social rise, in terms of education, in terms of competition within the Indian economy. 
So much of that depends on internal Indian decisions. Similarly, uh, the degree to which India, as we see right now, is very carefully calibrating its position vis-a-vis -vis the United States and its quad partners in Australia and Japan, which have formed uh, not an alliance, but basically a network of powerful Indo-Pacific countries to check China's very ambitious naval and overall military ambitions in the Western Pacific and in the Indian, Indian Ocean. Uh, but then we also have India's quite independent role vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Ukraine, where the U.S. and European partners have been leaning on India to sanction Russia, to take punitive measures, to be stronger in its condemnation. And the Indian government saying, well, wait a second, we don't necessarily have a stake in this fight. We want to make sure that we continue to have access to Russian armaments. Remember that India and Russia have a history going back decades to the Soviet era when India was the leader of the non-aligned movement and they purchased major weapon systems from the Soviet Union, and that continues to this day. So Russia is India's major arms supplier, and India feels threatened both by a nuclear-armed China in the Himalayas and a nuclear-armed Pakistan to its west. So mm -hmm. India feels mm -hmm. very much threatened, needs that Russian armaments relationship. It's also looking to expand its energy imports from Russia, and now that we see the potential for major food cutoff, especially wheat from Russia and Ukraine to the broader Middle East and Northern Africa, India has the, the potential to grow its wheat export industry by a factor of 300% over the next five to six years. So India has the potential to be an enormously more influential player in Asian politics, in the Indo-Pacific region, certainly in South Asia and its immediate sphere of influence and on the world stage so that it could potentially surpass Japan and become the third largest economy in the world after the U.S. and China. But this all depends on Indian government decisions, the will of the Indian people and the largest democracy in the world, and ultimately how India is able to effectively calibrate and counterbalance all of these security issues on the Asian continent. Hmm. What do you see as, as the potential global flashpoints that worry the most this is always the grim part of a discussion, <laughs> Ashton. Um, and I don't mean to make light of very, very difficult geopolitical challenges. Uh, but, you know, six months ago, we would have said Ukraine, and now we're inside the Ukraine cauldron. Uh, I don't know where we may see a flashpoint emanating from the region that we discussed earlier, Kaliningrad, where NATO is looking to bring Kaliningrad mm -hmm. to the negotiating table with Russia in regards to its objectives in Ukraine. I'm very concerned about food shortages in countries such as Egypt and Lebanon, which mm -hmm. are 80 to 100 percent mm -hmm. dependent on Russia and Ukraine for their wheat supplies. And as I just mentioned, there are other wow. countries such as India, perhaps the United States uh, can supply some of that wheat, but it won't make up the 80 percent that a country like Egypt with 100 million people mm -hmm. will need by mm -hmm. the end of 2022. So their, their supplies and stock should last through the summer. But come fall or winter, you know, you don't just put wheat on a ship and send it. There are long-term contracts to which current suppliers are obligated. You need to have the shipping or the, the trucking uh, infrastructure to be able to deliver those goods, depending on the geography and the destination markets. And a country like Lebanon is already a tinderbox right now. It could mm -hmm. be on the verge of a failed state. And mm -hmm. anyone who has some sense of history recalls the turmoil that civil war in Lebanon brought to the entire Middle East from 1975 until the late 1980s, and we cannot afford to see a country as influential 
and as populous as Egypt have major right. food shortages lead to riots, as we saw in the Arab revolts of 2008, 2009, 2010. So that's another area of concern. I also am watching very closely for North Korea. I don't know where this spate of ICBM missile tests is becoming increasingly problematic and a miscalculation by Kim Jong-un leads to some type of a response by South Korea uh, or by Japan for that matter that then obligates the US to intercede on behalf of our allies. And so we have that concern as well. And then as we mentioned at the beginning of this discussion or the middle of it, we don't know where China's ultimate ambitions are with Taiwan. And again, if it's not a massive island-wide invasion, an amphibious operation over all of Taiwan, what if we have a crisis involving one or two islands, as took place in the 1950s, the Kemoi Matsu uh, crisis, which uh, President Eisenhower then had to resolve by sending in aircraft carriers between China and Taiwan. And it was one of the first humiliating episodes for the Communist Party in Beijing at the hands of the United States that they are determined to never have repeated again. So we have a number of flashpoints all around the Eurasian rim. And I'll close with this. Libya is still very much in a civil war. Uh, it was uh, looking back a terrible mistake by NATO to overthrow the uh, Gaddafi government in 2010, open up Libya now as a sieve, not only for human trafficking from sub-Saharan Africa into Europe, but modern day slavery, men and women and children being sold mm -hmm. in open slave markets in Libya today, 2022, an absolute international disgrace and the degree to which food shortages affect other countries in Africa, you may have major migration flows into Europe in ways that will utterly overwhelm what took place in 2015. That was an incredible conversation. John, thanks so much for being with me. Uh, tell people where they can find more about you, learn more about your work, follow you. Uh, my Twitter page is simply at John Sidalides. That's my Twitter handle. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Facebook. I have a YouTube channel with over 200 TV news and podcast interviews. And my uh, website uh, for direct communication is at Sitilides, S-I-T-I-L-I-D-E-S dot -E com. John Sitilides, thanks so much, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Ashton. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.